What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Sapira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny, and I'll tell you why. That's a good one, Matt. No, I'll tell you why. Look, I'm not going to be able to do Welcome to Death or Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I am William Nagura. And Bill, just before you called me, you were saying that you're pretty frustrated with the phone system, right? Yeah, the prison system has a, um, a phone company called GTL. And they're the ones that issued us the our tablets and everything. They run the whole system. And of course, the tablets haven't been working for an entire day. You know, we pay... There's supposed to be phone calls are supposed to be free, as well as text messages. But the problem is those tablets don't work. Half, I mean, 90% of the time, they don't even work. You can't call anybody. The quality of the phone calls is just horrible. So now I'm stuck on a wall phone, um, which works some of the times. I just rather just get charges, our normal charge, to pay for the freaking phone calls, and at least they work. Right now, this system is so horrible that it's more frustrating to speak to your family or friends or whoever than to actually not have a phone at all. No, I'm sorry. It sounds like you're pretty frustrated, and obviously I'm not the only one, but it sounds like it's a, it's a frustrating situation for sure. Yeah, it just... If you're going to give somebody something free, make sure it's at least the level it was before rather than say it's free, charge the state all kinds of money because that's what they're doing. They're charging the state of California a lot of money for these calls for us. They say they're, they're, they're free, but they're not. They're, they're charging the state. But the quality is so horrible that they might as well might have a system. In other words, long story short, GTL sucks. Yeah, it's also a Texas-based company, which means they don't pay any taxes at all. And so you're in California, I'm in California, and we're paying for a service uh, to which I'm paying taxes on, and you are too, because you you actually have an income. I don't know if people know that, um, but but you do, we both do, and we're paying taxes on something that they base in Texas, and now they just fuck off and don't care. Pretty much, that, that's that's the, the crux of the whole deal. It's just bullshit. So we're here on a, on a wall phone. Hopefully, we can get through this episode. Like we can talk about the Candyman, and people understand me. Okay. So when we left off, uh, by the way, follow us on Patreon, Instagram, Facebook at Death Row Diaries. Um, when we left off, first of all, I would like to alert the listeners that I had just been potentially mugged and i was uh i had been up for a day and a half and i sounded like shit on the last episode so i apologize for that i don't know what else to say i'm sorry like um we're not like a typical podcast where we can go into a studio 
I have to talk to you, Bill, whenever you get the opportunity. And uh, it was pretty awkward, right? <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, yes. So all you people thought that Matt was on drugs. He was just totally pumped up and scared out of his wits because someone was trying to mug his ass. Yeah, that's true. All right, so let's get back into this Candyman Coral episode. So we basically just got the bare bones last week. Um, he was a predator who preyed on young boys. His family owned a candy store, and he would give candy to boys to entice them to hang out uh, to hang out with them. Right? Is that's pretty much it, right? Yeah, but this guy, he's more than that. I mean, he actually fits the bill of Candyman. Now, this, you know, everybody knows as little kids, we'd play around and say, Candy little boy, and we'd have this little joke. It's based on this guy. This guy is the boogeyman. He is a predator who actually owned a freaking candy store and a candy factory, and he was luring these boys into cars and vans and murdering them. This guy is a nightmare. He was the worst. I mean, of all the, the scary predators I've seen, this guy creeps me out. One of, he's one of the, the worst ones. And you're right. This guy, he was a predator. And I'm talking about a freaking insect that took killing kids to a whole different level. He had also two accomplices. And there are a lot of similarities between this guy who killed boys, teenage boys, as well as William Bonney, the freeway killer, who also had several accomplices. And those accomplices were really the, the reason that he was apprehended. In this case, the Candyman met his demise because of what his accomplices. Well, would you mind touching real quick, because you talked about it on the Patreon, but... Would you mind talking about your experience with Bonin in uh well while you guys were on Death Row together? Yeah, well, in, in, in a nutshell, he is an aggressive child molester. He always has been. And during my time where I was doing research and study on these predators without their knowledge, of course, I was playing like-minded predator trying to get them to talk and one of the things that William Bonney the freeway killer told me and he just we both discovered which I had no idea about was that during our conversations it came up that he had come across a teenager on Beach Boulevard near Whittier waiting for the bus with a surfboard and when he mentioned that my antenna went up and he described this boy and I said well why didn't you attempt to you know take him or try he said and his words were this boy seemed more predator than prey. Those are his words. And, and I kind of like, I said, well, well, describe him. So he had long black hair, tall, lanky kid, probably about between 14 and 16 years old, had a mustache. So I said, I said, hold on a minute. I went up to my cell and I brought back a picture and I showed it to him. And he immediately became very animated and he looked at it and he looked at me and it was like this moment of revelation. I knew what he was talking about. I was the boy he was talking about and he said, you're him. It was just that simple. You're that boy. 
And from that moment, again, I played to his, uh, I knew that he had accomplices. And I knew he liked to team up with people where he would be the dominant, the other ones be the submissives, which we have discussed that it's not really a dominant submissive where the guy's on his knees. He was just more dominant because these guys were teenagers. And the point being, the point being that this particular serial killer recognized me as, from the very beginning, as a predator. I don't mean that in a bad way, like a, a serial killer. I meant that he recognized that I was, in fact, a predator. And because of the being the higher, in the hierarchy of the food chain in prison, he immediately related and was able to talk to me at a certain level. So we have another guy in the candy man who's very similar to this guy. He also has a well, couple Bill, I, I wanted to ask you about this and and um just real quick and, and we'll get back to the candy man, but how do you know that that wasn't him fucking with you? How do you know that that wasn't him just making up an apocryphal story to just to mess with you? Well, because first of all, he described this boy on Beach Boulevard with a particular surfboard, when I asked him to describe the surfboard, which <laughs> my surfboard could not be duplicated. It I was see. a, go ahead, you got a question? No, I, I just said, I'm sorry, that makes sense. I wasn't interrupting you, go ahead. Yeah, the surf, I had a, my surfboard was black and it had a huge spider web on it and it had a, a big spider on it. When he described the surfboard, I knew it was me he was talking about. And he said, the kid was there at 4, 4.45 in the morning. My dad used to drop me off. If you've read my book, Escape Artist, you know my father dropped me off when I was 12, 13, 14 years old on this particular boulevard, which is Beach Boulevard, near Whittier, where I would wait for the RTD bus to take me to Huntington Beach. I did this all the time. But the, the crutch of the whole deal was he described my surfboard. And when I showed him the picture of me, he immediately became very animated. So I knew that the person that he had seen and at first thought I was going to be one of his victims was me. Right. Okay. So when you were describing the story initially, I thought maybe he had seen you once, but clearly he had seen you at that bus stop on a, a regular basis. I guess that's what I was missing. Yeah, and the, during the summertime, I, I went to Huntington Beach to surf when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, practically every single day, Monday through Friday. Because back then, um, summer was between June and all the way to September. And my father, when he went to work, he just dropped me off. Wow. Uh, man, that's... Yeah, that's pretty heavy. Okay, so we could go on about that maybe on a future episode. So let's talk about Coral the Candyman. And uh, when we left off, we had just established, I, I guess what I said earlier, that, you know, he he likes young boys, right? Yeah, and one of his first victims, I, I guess, he, he, he he's looking for boys. It's very interesting with the Candyman because... Obviously, he's from Houston, Texas, where he had a, a different number of, of candy stores. Uh, and, you know, his first victim was approximately August 10th, around there in 1973. And 
they actually found this body later on. And, and I mean, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. That's the day where they found the body. He actually got this kid, Jeffrey Cohen, uh, on September 25th, 1970. And he was hitchhiking from the university with a, another student from the University of Texas. And he was dropped off by himself. And on Voss Drive or Road near Uptown, Houston, and it's believed that he accepted a ride from the Candyman. And that's his first known victim. And when I mean known victim, I mean murder victim. Obviously, in my opinion, because I don't think that these guys just, they start killing from the very beginning. We know that he had a, an accomplice, and this accomplice's name was Brooks. And when we come back, I'll go into, because we, we touched a bit of, about it, how he met Brooks, and how he became his accomplice. And that's how we find this body several years later. So I'll come right back. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Hey, man. Hey, yes. Yeah, so to set this up for the listeners, he's going to have two accomplices. One of them is Brooks, and this will come to a pretty interesting conclusion. But um, you were talking about Brooks, right? Yeah, David Owen Brooks. It's his first accomplice, but he's also, and just to be clear, Brooks to begin this was a victim. He was a very small, awkward child that the Candyman began to talk to. And he at one point said that he had, this is the first time in his life he didn't feel awkward, was around the Candyman. Of course, the Candyman's a pedophile. And, and this little boy um, ends up being uh, the Candyman's lover for, for a number of years, since he was very small, 12, 13 years old, or I'm sorry, like 10, 11 years old. And from there he goes on. So as I mentioned, the Candyman had a killing spree of about three years, between 1970 and 1973. They think at first that he had about 28 to 30 victims, minimum, and all the victims between the age of 13 and 20. And in this particular case, um, Brooks leads authorities to where the victims are. And, and I jumped ahead just to say that because I wanted the, the audience to understand What's really going on in this situation? You know, Brooks now is a little bit older. And what happens is he walks in on his lover, which is the Candyman, and he is sexually assaulting two boys. He has two boys in his home. They're strapped to an opposite side of a four-poster bed. And when Brooks walks in on this, at least remember, the Candyman was not around to refute this or to say this is not what happened. We're getting this from one of his accomplices who's telling the story later on. So all this is going on and no one knows about it. It's after the incidents all happen, all the murders happen, that suddenly you have one of the accomplices and the other accomplice telling this, retelling the tale of the Candyman. How much we can believe is we have to have an eye of skepticism because these guys are his accomplices. So, of course, they're going to twist the story a little bit. But in this particular case, from what we understand, he walks in on him assaulting two boys at the same time, which I find incredibly weird. But to silence him, the candy man says, well, look, um, 
look, don't, please don't say anything to anybody. Uh, and by the way, they're also lovers, but I'll give you a Corvette if you keep your mouth shut. <laughs> wait, 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 sorry. You just said I find it weird because I'm pretty sure the audience and myself is finding this whole situation weird. What do you mean by weird? Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, look, it's pretty hard for any man to, for example, if it's a rape, if he's raping one woman, but to have two women in the same room tied up together, he's raping both of them, he's sexually assaulting them, that seems not just, what I mean is a bit much, right? I mean, most rapists, killers are trying to, you know, subdue one person. He's got two of them. And he's sexually assaulting these kids. He's torturing them. So he's really enjoying this. His partner walks in, Brooks, and he, his response is, look, I'll give you a Corvette, which he does. He buys them in 1969. Um, Wait, no uh, way. He actually, he followed through Corvette. and bought him a Corvette. Yeah, I mean, this is it. He buys him a freaking Corvette. I mean, this is exactly what the story's about. Oh my God. And then when he realizes, and again, this is what Brooks is telling law enforcement and police years later, is that the candy man offered him, look, if you can bring me boys, I'll give you $200 a head. And in today's market, it's about $1,500, which is not bad for a, a young teenager to get. And that's exactly how this guy begins to get um, victims. He has Brooks that goes out and he starts bringing him his friends. So when I read this, I started thinking about this man. I'm thinking, you know what? This story doesn't jive for me. And what I mean by that is we got Brooks telling this story. And of course, he's made it sound a little bit more, look, I'm more victim than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yes, I lured the kids to him, but, you know, I didn't know that he was going to kill them, according to him. And the candy man, it's very interesting because this unfolds later and up to 2016, new information is coming out about the candy man. Remember, this happened between 1970 and 73. But one of the things that, that the candy man talks about is that he's part of a sex, a white slave, a sex slavery, um, like outfit, sex traffic that deals out of, yeah, that deals out of Dallas, Texas, and these boys, the majority of them, are being sold, which kind of makes sense. Think about this: this guy is a candy man. He sells candy. He doesn't sell freaking Corvettes. He doesn't sell, you know, high octane Teslas. $200 a head, and this guy's killing, they're saying, minimum 28 to 30 kids. You start adding that up, so you're talking about $50,000, the equivalency of that, and less than three. That's a lot of money. Well, when okay, people talk one. about like a, a ring, people always throw that, that term around, like a, a trafficking ring, but this is verifiably 100%, like, it's a ring, like, no joke, right? Right. And, and, well, and Brooks only knows about the murders that this guy is doing in front of him. But All right, just go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. So you have to understand that this guy, in my opinion, he was part of a ring. And the boys that he was killing was kind of like what a drug dealer does. He, drugs, he deals large amounts of drugs. 
and then he chips, he takes pieces off of it for his own habits. That's what this guy was doing. He was selling kids into the sex ring, slavery. And then the boys that really appealed to him, he was picking them off. And these boys were special because they were actually acquaintances. Most of them were of this kid, David Brooks. So that's how I believe this really happened. I believe Brooks is keeping information to himself, which was that other boys were sold into a particular ring and maybe they were afraid for their life and they didn't tell the police about this ring. He mentions it, but he doesn't give any details about it. That's what I believe happened. But back to the Candyman, this guy is, he's, they, they called it a bloodlust because once he began to kill, he was killing two boys every day. He'd pick up two, like for example, um, on December 13, 1970, Brooks lures a 14-year-old boy named James Glass and his brother Danny Gates I'm sorry, uh, uh, James Glass and Danny Gates, and they're recruited or lured from a religious rally in Houston. And they take them to his apartment where they strap them side by side, torture them to a torture board. He had this big torture board where he put these boys. He would rape them, strangle them, and then he'd bury them in the back of a uh, a boat shed. And he continues this. He picks up Donald and Jerry Waldrop, Again, these are happen to be two brothers, and he kills them both. And it just continues. His bloodlust seems to be getting higher and higher and higher. And it, and it really does correlate with someone who has a sexual addiction. Not only because he's a rapist and a murderer and a serial killer, he also has an addiction with just pornography, with sex. It rules his entire life. And this guy's just, I'm just shocked at the amount of killings he was doing during this period. Look, as I mentioned before, Matt, there are cases that are popping up right now after so many years where now authorities are saying that they have found new bodies. You know, that they've actually been drilling into Coral's old backyard and they found crates with human hair. This has been more than 50 years. So you have now a person who probably killed maybe between 15 and 25 more boys than was originally fought. Right. So I don't like to glorify this stuff and get into the macabre at all, but so he had a board i don't know what that means probably a piece of plywood with some some uh, restraints drilled into it or something and um his associate was witnessing this even though he was himself a victim no one's denying that or at least i hope they're not but they were engaging in this together for a pretty prolonged period of time right yeah no, you're right. This is, I mean, I'm looking at this case and I'm blown away. So listen to this. So we can get a, a pretty good idea of how this guy killed him, what he did, Matt. This guy, there's only one serial killer of boys that surpassed what they thought was like the big number. His number it was 33 murder victims. That was John Wayne Gacy, who is the clown, you know, supposed to be like the guy that killed more kids. 
although the freeway killer in in um, uh, William Bonnie was very high as well. They thought as many as maybe 37. But this guy here, the Candyman, and his um, his accomplices, they're saying that he surpassed 50 murder victims. That is a, a huge number of victims. Well, Bill, how, three years I, I don't want to interrupt you because God knows last week <laughs> when I was having a mental issue. Um, but as a general rule, how does it work with the numbers? Do you double it? Do you cut it in half? Or how does that work? It, for me, it really depends on the serial killer and what type of um, bloodlust he's going through. This guy went through what his accomplice called a bloodlust. It increased as time went on, very similar to how, how Richard Ramirez was killing at first tentatively in San Francisco and other places. And then he begins to increase where he's killing two people a night. And it's just, it goes on and on. This is very similar. The I-5 killer did the same thing. He increased as the bloodlust began to set. But this guy, like I said, it depends on the killer. This guy here, three years, confirmed 28 to 30. I said those numbers are close to 50. Let me call you back. Hey. Hey, Bill. Hey, I'm back. All right, so him and his partner, well, it, at the very least, he's now committing atrocities I don't want to think about, and I guess that's what you're getting at. Now it's it's ramping up, right? Yeah, well, I mean, yes, exactly. But this is a very rare situation because this guy, Brooks, during this spree of killing, um, and it's like the, after about a year and a half, he suddenly brings a new kid into the picture named Elmer Wayne Henley. And Elmer Henley is very unique because when a couple of boys had disappeared, uh, which were the uh, Gregory H uh, Winky Winkle and David Hilligast, he's their friend. And he's hanging out posters with a reward for these kids' whereabouts. And, you know, he, he knows, he's an acquaintance of Brooks, and he introduces him to the Candyman. And this guy, Henley, begins to, he gets lured to his house to begin with. And there's something about him that the Candyman likes, or maybe he did something, and I, I can't tell you what that was, but maybe it was something that gave him the impression that maybe he could be an accomplice as well. So he again offers this kid $200 if he'll help um, Brooks lure boys to his apartment. And he again reiterates, reiterates um, the deal that he's working for a white he's working for a white slavery ring operating from Dallas. And I don't know how this works because, I mean, these are atrocities. He's, he's, this guy is murdering children, but this guy decides to just help along. He says later on that, no, it took him months of back and forth and you know, struggling with his conscience. I don't believe that at all. 
I believe that this guy immediately jumped in. I don't know. Right. I, I don't believe it either because if you presented it to me, it, it's a yes or no situation. I'm going with no, right? <laughs> like, who has to debate that? Right. That's exactly right. There's no way this guy's, well, I'm going to think about it for the next two or three months. At least in my case, if someone brought me something like that and I didn't want anything to do with it, I'm going to the police. This guy's killing kids. Or this guy's doing this. But obviously something went on there that um, that appealed to this kid. And it appealed to Brooks. Now, how this guy found two kids. How did he find two kids? Yeah, how he finds two kids in the same neighborhood that know the same group of kids that are willing to participate, not only just killing boys, but bringing their friends in and luring them into a situation where they know they're going to be murdered is beyond me. I mean, I don't know about you, Matt, but if someone hit me with this thing and I knew what they're doing to my friends, there's no way I'm going to let this happen. But these boys seem to not only do it, but they're now in business for it. They're getting $200 a pop and they're continuing on with this luring boys. Now we're talking about 13-year-old boys, 14-year-old boys. It's just insane what's going on here. Yeah, I was thinking about this pretty heavily because uh, as a kid, I was poor. I wasn't broke. Like, we had a good uh, you know, roof over our heads and whatnot, but I didn't have any money at all. Like, I was trying to scrounge some quarters for a cheeseburger or something, but if you would have said to me, do you want $2,000 to watch me rape a boy on a piece of plywood? I would have said, no, thanks. No, I, I got I got other places to be. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's very disturbing that this happened this way. And they actually have um, a record of who it was that Brooks and... Um, this other kid, Henley, took first. It's a 17-year-old boy named Mark Scott. And he was a very good friend to both Henley and Brooks. But he was grabbed by force, restrained, taken to this place, his apartments, because the Candyman had, like, at some point, six different apartments he had gone to over periods of time. So he had an apartment, something happened there for a while. He, he moved to another apartment. He just kept moving. But he brings this book, this uh, this young man, Mark Scott, and they tied him to the torture board. They raped him, tortured him, strangled uh, strangled him, and then buried him in High Island Beach. So he had like three locations where he buried these kids: the boat shed, High Island Beach, and another place. It's just where he had a his family had a cabin. It's just. It blows my mind how quickly these guys killed. And it happened sometimes two a day, maybe four within a week. These are high numbers for a guy to be killing, especially with two kids as an accomplice. So you're differentiating, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, between the two accomplices, right? Um, say one more time, somebody just set an alarm off in this fucking place, and of course the TV's turned on full blast because I'm surrounded by idiots. Right. Well, so am I, just I have a little bit more privacy. Uh, but you're saying that, uh, 
So the the two accomplices, there is a difference between one of the two, and that I think one of them recruited the other. Is that correct? That's correct. Right. But they're both participating. These guys are equally as guilty in my eyes, um, and they participate in the torture and the rape. I don't believe that the candy man was the only one doing the raping or the torturing, okay? I just don't. I know these kids say that, that, they, that they were there, but they didn't participate. I find that extremely hard to believe that a man like the candy man is raping and doing something. He's naked, he's got his back turned to these kids, and these kids just stand there eating candy watching. No, that's not what happened. These guys were willing participants that became part of this particular serial killer's uh, ammunition or weapons. They were weapons, and they were set to go kill, go lure, and do all these things that they did. Um, and I just don't believe their story that they did participate in actually torturing and murdering of these kids. I don't either, but I think our last episode or the one before was about Stockholm Syndrome, right? Yeah, one could argue that, but um, in this situation, it's different. And I'll tell you why. And I'm not a being a male Soviet chauvinist pig or anything like that. But women, when they go into this syndrome, they have been raped, they've been humiliated, they're overpowered. In this case, you have two teenage vibrant boys and I can see where a psychologist would argue that they could be victims of Stockholm Syndrome. And it's true, they could be. But they I were based on I but they were raped also, correct? No. The first book Brooks became his lover. They were lovers. Yes, he was let's kind of back up. So yeah, he was molested by a sexual predator. But he was in fact gay. I'm not saying that a gay person can't be raped. What I'm saying is that he actually became part of this guy's deal. He gets a Corvette. He gets $200 a month. He goes mm -hmm. home. He comes back. At one point, he's living with the candy man. I don't see Stockholm Syndrome. Okay. Thank what you I for clarifying that. Accomplices. Right. Okay. Thank you for and as clarifying I women that. Women can be frightened so can boys but in this situation you have two boys they outweigh they're bigger than this guy i believe that they participated willingly they did not get into a position where they were in a stockholm syndrome the other boy um henley according to himself goes home for two or three months they considers the 200 dollars, comes back and says yeah i want to do this that's a different situation totally all right, so I think, because we do have a few listener questions, so to kind of tie it up until the final conclusion, which is, I would say, dramatic. <laughs> um, so can we talk about the, the his two accomplices and just real quick, like, what their relationship is uh, with each other and with the Candyman? Well, the two accomplices are, are friends. They know each other. They knew each other before. They became acquainted with the Candyman. And their relation to each other is kind of strange. We don't know the relationship that was there uh, besides just being accomplices. Um, 
we know that Brooks uh, married his pregnant fiance. So this is why I'm saying this is not a Stockholm syndrome. This kid, he's out and about driving his beautiful Corvette. He's got a girlfriend. He's got her pregnant. He goes off and gets married, comes back. And during this time, Henley is the one, um, he's the one killing with this guy. And he's attending classes at a driving school. So, look, this guy is not in any way, shape, or form a victim at this point. And we see this because towards the end, and as you mentioned, his demise is pretty dramatic, right? Yeah. I don't want to give anything away, but it's pretty awesome. Well, we're going to have to get into it anyways and tell about it, or unless you want to cut the episode there and then come back later. I think we're going to have to cut it here because we have to do a Patreon episode about the uh, railroad killer. So if you don't mind, I think we should leave it until next time, uh, especially because I have a question here from Billy. Bill, in the new prison uh, facility, is the food better? Actually, it's not. fried chicken yeah it was great okay so then on top of that we got corn on the cob Mm -hmm. we got um, mashed potatoes the real mashed potatoes we got um, also we got uh, yams we got freaking muffins chocolate muffins (laughs) chocolate milk a regular milk and then uh, we got a piece of cake on top of that I'm like, okay, it must be the 4th of July, it's a special occasion. No, the next morning, they gave us scrambled, I mean, they gave us fried eggs, pancakes, freaking sausage, milk, juice, and uh, I was just blown away. Yeah, you had like a nice spread there. Was it on a table? Like, were you able to spread it out? Sorry, I'm derailing this thing. So we're gonna we're gonna uh, punt it over to the Patreon to talk about a different killer. But I, I, I'm sorry, I have to ask you this question. So you and I talked about Shawshank Redemption because we both seen it on TV a bunch of times, right? Correct. So the scene where he gets three beers apiece for his convicts, wouldn't they? 
just be like killing each other and getting like completely blackout drunk and like you know just clubbing each other over the head with those beers well no because remember if you remember that well first of all Matt, that's a screenplay that was written by a writer. It's not really true. Okay, so I'm, I'm looking um, at, but if you know, but if you're, if you were in, on death row and they gave everyone three beers, what would happen? Well, see, if it happened like if they said Shawshank Redemption, where this guy gets it for his coworkers, and he says, "Look, I'll do your taxes if you give me, you know, I want these beers for my friend, ice cold beers." It, it, and I guess so. There weren't maniacs. There was yes, there's killers, but there's also rules. There's convict, the convict code. On death row, the convict code existed. If I did that, where I did the taxes for a cop, and he gave three beers to all my coworkers, oh man, they'd love me. I mean, they'd be like, man, it's great. They're gonna drink their beers. They're gonna enjoy themselves. Now, some guys get yeah drunk and they do stupid things. Three beers is not gonna get you drunk unless you're 11 year old little girl, right? So. Um, that wouldn't happen because cops in this day and age won't bring you three beers and just give them to a bunch of convicts because someone's going to tell on that cop. But, yeah. So that's that's really, you know, like a, it's a written script, very well written script, but that wouldn't happen in these days. I'm just saying there must have been one alcoholic that would just try and kill everyone and drink like 30 beers at one time. But anyway. Well, those cops would have beat him to death, but okay. But good point. Didn't think about it that way. By the way, good point. All right, so um, we're going to have part three of The Candyman and the conclusion, which is amazing, by the way. And, uh, Bill, we're going to continue this conversation on Patreon with a different case right now. So, so we'll be back next week with The Candyman and... We're going to do a separate case right now on Patreon. However, until then, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Figueroa. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life can depend on it. We'll see you next time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's just go into it. Give me one sec. Oh, yeah. Perfect. All right.